0: Welcome to the West Highland Way Race podcast. I'm John Keniston and this is episode 77. I'm recording this on Wednesday the 8th of April. And a few days ago on Saturday, I had a long interview with Robert Osfield. So that's going to be the main item, in fact, the only item of this podcast. Um, Robert's someone who I've been wanting to interview for a while. If anyone um, follows and reads my blog, you'll probably have come across Robert. Um, He's very prolific in his comments and really, really helpful. And over the last few years, Robert has tried to really think about his running and how to approach ultras in, I think, quite a, a different way. Um, and certainly trying to run to heart rate in particular and that's something over the last year or so that I've taken on board as well and in my, pre, my last race uh, two three weeks ago now, the Hardmore's 55 I really took it to another level and tried to keep my heart rate within five beats throughout the whole time and uh, I had a Good race, and there uh, was 35 minutes or so faster than last year and felt so much more comfortable. So I've been wanting to speak to Robert, and it worked out quite well on Saturday. He was coming down from Calendar with his daughter and her friends for a concert, so we had a few hours to kill. So we came across the Paisley, and we were able to uh, do the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this one. It's um, I, I, it, it, Basically, we talk about Robert's races and what he's learned And then the last bit is talking about um, how to run to heart rate in an ultra. So if that's something that you're interested in or been thinking about, then I really suggest you listen to this and um, hopefully get some good ideas from Robert. There's lots of other things I'd love to talk to him about, uh, his training and various other things that we didn't get onto. So maybe we'll try and do another one in a future episode and pick up the things that we missed on this one. The fling is just over two weeks away, so those that are preparing for that, I hope your training's going well. Uh, The weather's really nice today, been out for a run at lunchtime, and the sun's shining, so you never know, it might be a a very warm day, uh, or certainly a clear day in a couple of weeks. There's been other races so far, the Glasgow to Edinburgh was last Saturday, and there's other races coming up as well. So anyway, this episode is uh, dominated by my interview with Robert, And I hope you really enjoy it as much as I did chatting with him a few days ago. Welcome back to our latest West Island Way podcast. I've been wanting to interview Robert for a a year or so. I think I asked you last year. And um, you, you didn't you weren't too sure, but uh, it's worked out well tonight because Robert has brought down his daughter and her friends to a concert in Glasgow and he had a few hours to kill. So we thought, how can I kill those hours? <laughs> so he got in touch and he's come over to Paisley. And so we're doing this interview. So uh, Robert's done the West Highland way uh, once in 20 hours, 1846 last year. And we're going to find out all about that. But first of all, Robert, uh, thanks for coming, and if you can just maybe introduce yourself, a little bit of your non-running background, just so that we get a sense of who you are.
1: Okay, um, I guess it's, it's, I've got quite a, a checkered past. Um, I'm a forces child, so my dad was in the Air Force, so that meant that through my, my childhood years, I was moving from from place to place, a couple of years in each place. Um, a couple of years in Singapore a couple of years in England then a couple of years in Germany a couple of years back in England and my most formative years were actually up in Scotland when he moved to um, Elgin and then Lossiemouth and my dad was based up in Lossiemouth and quite early on when we were there my brother and I went and did a fun run in Cooper Park and we got spotted by a local athletic club (laughs) and they said oh Guys, you d- did quite well. You should you should, you should do running more seriously. Mm. And so my, my parents said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll send you along. So we basically, went along two days a week, for, you know, Tuesdays and, and Thursdays for training, and the weekends we'd do the cross country season, and then we'd do the track season during the summer. And you know, we started off not particularly good, but year you know, after year we got better and better, and that was just really formative. My dad was hand guarding in the hills, so at the weekends we'd go walking in the hills. And and we had a dog, so we walked the dog on the beach, and every day, and then we'd do the cross country races and the the track races the weekends, and the training during the week, and it was just a great environment, you know. I just loved it, and you know, eventually, at the age of sixteen, started my hires for two weeks, and then got sent down south. (laughs) So I then finished my education down south, and did four years at Oxford, did engineering and computer science, which. Possibly might explain a little bit of the way I am, I guess. I'm, I probably am born analytical, um, but certainly my education has kind of fine tuned that, <laughs> possibly to an obsessive level. Uh, uh, these days, um, I, I left university um, for a little while. I actually worked down in the Isle of Wight designing and test flying hang gliders, and there wasn't really much money yet, and not much future, unfortunately, as much as it's uh, a labor of love. Just um, on the
0: on the uh, testing, did you ever have any
1: hairy moments where your testing was was put to the test? Yeah, a couple of times we had problems steering some of the gliders <laughs> we built, um, but no, not too much. Right. Um, I was yeah, I, I tend to be given because of my uh, my small, small stature perfect running, but um, I was supposed to flew all the small smaller hand gliders. Um, I used to design and modify my own hand gliders as well, so um, I, I was. Quite known for being quite experimental with, you know, <laughs> people, I would turn up on the hill and people would look very strangely at me, and off I would fly, and I had never actually killed myself. <laughs> well, you like Not did. even once, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of, I got through that era, um, and then I moved to Scotland and worked in Park Circus in Glasgow, and so I lived in in the West End of Glasgow, absolutely loved it, did lots of hang on got into a local hang on club, and... That was my life, really, and mm-hmm. then I met my, w- met my wife, Julia, on a handguarding hill. She was actually learning to handguard right. on Tinto, right. so we met. And then a friend was getting married, so I needed, it, needed somebody to take along to the, to the <laughs> wedding, and so kind of that—that's mm-hmm. really what kind of got me and Julia together. Right. So she learned handguarding, and, right. and we're at handguarding. And mm-hmm. so our first couple of years courting was kind of all out in the handguarding hills, <laughs> with you know walking when it was too windy to. The fly and then hang guarding otherwise. Right. And so we had a hang guarding honeymoon <laughs> over in Chamonix. And she was learning still to hang guard at that point. And she was great, basically. And then we came back. We so was that, was, that together. Sh- was that a dual hand glider? Which well, did? she did some dual hand yeah.
0: Um
1: But I've never actually flown with Julia. OK. We've flown in the air at the same time. So right. she's been flying her hang glider, and I've been flying mine. Right. And, and you wave across the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she was really kind of learning she got about 20 hours of airtime i guess i've got about 800 hours of airtime so i'm okay. you know i've been flying for mm-hmm. since i was 16 and I know. I was 17 i think when i first started handguarding. Um, kind of my dad was a hangarer pilot yeah. so i actually got trained through the air, air forces um mm-hmm. centre in Kakao. and so that was kind of life i was living in you know got in together and got married um, and lived in preswick and I was still doing handguarding at that point, but then we started our family. Mm. So Julia stopped handguarding completely at that point. Mm. Uh, it's a bit hard
0: when you're pregnant, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it's partly <laughs> that. <laughs> and
1: it's also, you know, handguarding's not really, really dangerous, mm. but it's still like one one fatality per thousand participants per year. And you kind of, I, I understand stats. And, then, you know, the odds are that you'd you'd survive to ripe old age, and I never had any serious injuries. The worst, I'd had cut my lip Mm. when landing in Glencoe once, when the wind (laughs) switched, landed downwind at 30 miles an hour. But I still, you know, landed (laughs) and just dusted myself down. The main problem in actually landing in in Glencoe is the the midges, which (laughs) (laughs) ultra runners will understand quite well. But uh, imagine breaking down your hang glider in a new wind day in the middle of Moor and you're just a sitting target for 20 minutes while you're trying to break down your, your glider. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's <laughs> 10 times worse than anything you experience as a, a support mm-hmm. re- runner. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of uh, an era. Kind In of my, th- my 20s, I was hang on a huge amount. And then come to my 30s, I then decided to start my own business in, in computer graphics um, consulting and running my own business, isn't very compatible with having any spare time and having a young family. So we started off with one girl and second and a third, mm. um, within a, a five year span. And that really kind of put paid to any spare time <laughs> running own business and having three young girls. Mm. When a handguarding, when you do it, you go out for the whole day mm. and you might be chasing the wind around lots of different sites in, in Scotland. So, we, you know, you might start off at Tinto and go across the Broughton Heights and then, you, know, you might not do any flying whatsoever so if you leave the house at 6 in the morning and then come home at 11 at night <laughs> and, you know you don't get to see your family very much yeah. so it's not you know I adore my family you know mm. you have a family and you want to spend time with them mm. so buggering off and handguarding isn't, isn't compatible with that I mean, certainly when they're all kind of babies and still starting to talk and walk and stuff mm. these are the times when you want to be okay. there and so I kind of Gave up handguarding occasionally on holidays. I would do a bit of handguarding, but not too much. Judo had given up. So I basically worked, and I helped raise a family mm-hmm. in my 30s. And then later on in my 30s, my business was doing well enough that Judo could retire from speech therapy, and we moved up to calendar. And so that was kind of age of 39, I moved to calendar. Right. Nice. And the at that point is really when the story of running reemerged. So I hadn't done any exercise pretty well through my thirties. Right.
0: And And so obviously what, what what got you back into running then or to, to start running?
1: Well, it was you know, I moved to Calendar because it'd be near the near the hills for hang and stuff like that, but my business was still so busy that it just and the weather in Scotland is so fickle that I never really got round to it. And I had friends who were runners in, in Calendar and They kind of found out as a teenager I was quite a serious cross-country runner. And, you know, a couple of those were ultra-runners, and they just wouldn't let it go. You know, they're (laughs) like, you have to come out with this. You have to come out with this. (laughs) So I eventually did, and you know, I started off with, like, a a two-mile run and was exhausted at the end of it, and then a Mm -hmm. a four-mile run with them, and it was just – I was a mess. (laughs) But I was hooked. You know, they they all really – they were much fitter at that point than myself. And – you know, they would do lots of long runs and, you know, I just, that was beyond me, well mm. beyond me. But it just, slowly, I, I got hooked. Mm. And it's got to be said, running the Trossex is stunning. Mm. You know, you basically no getting in the car, no cycling anywhere, you just stick your shoes on and out you go. So from and your to, house
0: you can just be straight up, can you?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so um I've got lots of trails um very little flat. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> Almost all the trails are actually got hills in them in, in, in some form. Um, ben Laddy is only you know three miles before you start ascending, ascending Ben Ben up at Bowcastle Hill. So you know it's all on my doorstep. Mm. You've got Loch Vennerca, Loch Lubnick, um You've got strucker Coin and Ben Vorlich to the north, and you've got Ben Venu to the the west, and uh, you know. Ben Gulapen to the, the, the southeast. So, quite often I'll do things like Ben Gulapen, which is a 1,200 foot ascent and descent. Mm. Um, so, these are real kind of playgrounds. It's quite, quite spoiling for a person who loves to be out in the environment. Yeah. And of course, forests and lochs and mountains, you just get lots to see, lots of wildlife. Mm. So, when people are sat, you know, there could be at their computer dead at work in the middle of Glasgow or Edinburgh, and my lunchtime, I'm not sat, you know, going down to Greg's to get a, a pasty or something like that. I'll actually be out yeah. running. So I, I, I try and run in the middle of the day before lunch. Mm. So that, that's, that's become my life, really. Yeah. I just going kind to of work for myself from home yeah. and get the opportunity to, to go and do wonderful things out in the countryside. And yeah. it's kind of, it's quite therapeutic yeah. as well as good for getting fit.
0: Yeah. So in a, in a sense, it was inevitable that you were doing ultra, was it? You know, given that your friends didn't give up on you and were encouraging you to well, go, was uh, yeah. it always part of the plan?
1: Well, no. I never expected to even do a marathon, but within the first year, mm. um, I'd done my first marathon. Mm. And I think, like, was many, that a road marathon? It was a road marathon, yeah. Edinburgh, Edinburgh Marathon. Okay. Um, that was in 2010, I think, yeah, 2010. And so i have basically been running for a year at that point, right. but only six months, seriously. Mm. And I think uh, I, I guess I probably have Dean Karnazes, like many people, as mm. been kind of one of the things that kind of started making me read. So I, I read his kind of his main seminal work, mm. <laughs> which I guess he has eclipsed everything he's done since. But um, so it was kind of Marathon Man, mm. uh, Confessions of Midnight Runner, that that book, crazy, mm. um, but inspiring. So that kind of got me out and started to run distances I didn't think was possible. And at that point, it was like sixty miles. Mm. But you know, then I worked up to doing a marathon and then shortly after doing the Edinburgh Marathon I did the Lockholch Dirty Thirty. And I didn't really enjoy the Edinburgh Marathon. It was a hot day. I really struggled in the last six miles, you know, stereotypical hit the wall. You know, I had cramp in my leg quads and stuff like that. Mm. But when I ran the La Dirty thirty, it was just fun. Mm. You know, a beautiful environment, you know such a contrast to Edinburgh marathon yeah. running on the road mm. and you know you start up at Glen Elg and you go around the coastline and you're going through woodlands and people chat and, to you during the race yeah don't that's they? right and <laughs> you're eating food and I enjoy food yeah um, and you it's just such a different experience mm. and it's very friendly the marshals are really friendly yeah. you stop and talk to people you're stopping walking on their hills mm. and as you go through it also people go through the same pain, Mm. you know, so there's kind of camaraderie between people. Mm. You know, you do a road marathon, and you hardly talk to people. Mm. And, you know, partly it's because you're just concentrating on getting a PB or whatever, Um, but also there's just so many people you get lost in the crowd. It's it's more lonely in the crowd than it is in a twosome or threesome. Mm. And when you're spending two or three hours with somebody en route, you can get the whole backstory, you can start, yeah. you know, you become friends through, a, the, the, through the journey. Mm. And just the actual process of challenging yourself and being in discomfort mm. and beating it. And, you know, I think the last five or six miles from the Lockhart 3030, my, my quads were just really painful and I could hardly, my, my hip flexors were shrinking. <laughs> so my, my gait was basically just kicking off my my, my calves. So I was just kind of tiptoeing along, you know, any way to get you know some semblance of, of form of motion going. Um, but I loved it. Mm. You know, me and my mate finished it together, and it was just I was hooked. Yeah. You know, this was like okay, ultras are what I like doing yeah. on trails, not not road marathons. And so after that was, one,
0: what what was the next ones that you
1: targeted? So I then started looking for other events mm-hmm. and the next one that... Um, so the, the Lochholz 3030 was three weeks after the Edinburgh Marathon um, at the beginning of June. And so I looked for another one and in September there was the River Airway. So this is the River Airway in 2010 and it's 40 miles. Well, it was actually on listed 43 miles, isn't it? Was it 44 mm-hmm. miles, something yeah. like that? Yeah. And it was really kind of okay, that's a big step up. <laughs> I didn't, um, I, you know, I felt pretty intimidated by it, but I also liked the idea of the challenge. Mm. And being back in Ayrshire was also quite a draw. You know, I'd actually gone past the route many times, driving from Preswick to Tinto. So I knew the route, mm. the, the area really, not, you know, really well. And I, it's, it's a nice area. Mm. Um, I mean, it's quite different from, obviously, the West Highland Way. In terms of its beauty, but it's got a, quite a different kind of smaller charm, yeah. and so that was a nice step up. And that was a, a tough race. I, you know, I kind of went out too fast <laughs> and really struggled in the in the last, you know, ten fifteen miles. But again, I just really enjoyed it, mm. you know. And I was having cramp problems in the latter miles, and you know, screaming out <laughs> in pain, mm-hmm. hobbling. Um with Cramp. Um and anybody said Cramp knows it's pretty awful. Um but I finished it and that was again it was another stepping stone. But actually, um when I was actually preparing for that, I was, you know, being an analytical sort, I wanted to learn as much as possible about it so I could be prepared going into it. And of course, if you start searching on this, what blog do you come across? But John Kennaston's blog. So Um, I guess that's my first introduction to Mm -hmm. spreadsheets (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and uh, relating to splits and all these things like that. And also, you know, a more methodical way of trying to approach races. And at that stage, I really didn't know very much. Mm. Um, But I was basically wide-eyed, open-eared and just, you know, trying to learn as much as possible Mm. um, about these things. And also, being a kind of a scientific engineering Mm -hmm. type, you, you not only want to learn from others, but also you want to learn from your own experiences. Mm. And I think at that point I had a heart rate monitor and I started to you know dabble with the ideas of heart rate mon- you know, running my heart rate monitor. I, I think I did it in the, the Edinburgh Marathon and I looked at the Marco online calculator and so I knew what profile to expect. And as soon as I started, my heart rate went up well above, but my pace was about right, so I just stuck with it. You know, the pace I wanted to run at. Mm. Of course... I was 20 minutes slower than that in the end, so I actually ran out too fast. The heart rate monitor was actually correct, and I was wrong. (laughs) And when I did the Dirty 30, um, I did the same. I was kind of, I thought, right now, heart rate about 160. I'll try and aim for that. Very quickly, it was up at 170. Mm. But I felt comfortable, and I'll just go with it. You know, two hours later, oh, (laughs) pain, and the river airway, same story <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually a case of right i think roughly this is what i'll try for the heart rate and, and kind of run out at that heart rate for a certain period mm-hmm. and you know and then within about a mile or two you know you're kind of running at nine minute mile pace or you know eight minute mile pace and everyone else is charging off and you kind of get carried along with a kind of herd mm-hmm. mentality mm-hmm. that if you kind of you're doing something wrong if everyone's overtaking you, you, you know, and you want to be competitive a little bit, letting all people go isn't a natural thing to do. Mm. I think it's quite a human thing to do. Is actually, you know, if everyone else has got the experience, then you defer to them and you want to be with them. So I kind of naturally just ignored the hell rate right monitor, what it was saying, and just continued on. So I kind of ran more by feel. Um, but what I found was that that feel was just inaccurate uh, judging what my intensity should be Mm -hmm. and and so over the years i kind of got better at that but it took me quite a few years to actually understand really just how subtle the physical physiological signals you get um, when you're ultramarathoning it's quite different when you do a 10k when you do a 10k you're running hard and if you go out too fast quite quickly your lungs are burning your legs Mm -hmm. are burning and you hurt significantly, and you know to back off you know that it 's not going to ha- you know this, this pace isn 't going to happen all the way to the finish, and you you can actually get a feel mm. for where to be and in training when you do a tempo run again you 're learning about that, that that lactate threshold how it feels mm. and then in 10k you might able to exceed that slightly depending on on what pace you 're running at um, but the you know, the signal's quite a strong signal, so you can run by field relatively easily. Mm. You still get it wrong. You still get out too fast and crash and burn at the end or go out too easy and, 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 you know, you could have gone faster if you'd gone about a bit quicker. But the signal's there. And you get to half marathon, it's a bit more difficult to judge. Um A marathon, it's even more difficult to judge. You know, most people get a marathon wrong, mm. end up crashing and burning in the last six miles. And when you go to an ultramarathon the actual appropriate pace is so slow slow you know it, you know it's basically for most people it's going to be nine ten eleven minute mile pace and you're training very rarely at that pace mm. you know especially during the week you might be doing eight minute mile pace it's actually your easy pace mm. and if you do a seven minute mile pace and what i say right like for me it would be a you know getting nearer to tempo um a 6 30 pace tempo so that's when you get the strong feel of you know what your pace is and the physiology of what's happening in your body. But when you're running at ten minute mile pace, well, there's not really you know you're just jobling along <laughs> and uh, nothing really strong saying you're going too fast or too slow. Because, you know the, the feedback you get between going at ten minute mile pace or eleven minute mile pace or nine minute mile pace is pretty flat mm. in terms of your feel. And some people are really good at it, can judge it really well. Mm. I think probably 95% of the field, like myself, really struggle just to mm. know what that appropriate speed is and know that that slightly higher level of intensity mm. is actually too hard. Yeah. And it's just really difficult to judge that by feel. field. Some people have it. Uh, some people can develop it. But I think because it's so far below the lactate threshold, a lot of the physiological feedback mechanisms you would get when running harder, just aren't there. Yeah. So it's now quite I,
0: difficult. I, I would like to come back to some, and we will come back to some okay. of these things, um, but just, just to, I'd like to get a little bit more sense of your own running as well before we get into some of the questions about training and planning and strategy. Okay. Um, so let's just go forward a few years, and um, you've, done a, you've done the Devils, you've done the Fling, um, and obviously the West Harlem Way race was the, the big one for, for last year, and that was the furthest you've run. That yep. was the longest so race you've done. Before
1: that, the, it was the Highland Fling. Okay. So I did the Highland Fling in 2010. Yeah. And in 1046, I think I finished in. And I really enjoyed that. I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back in 2013. Ended up with a mat- metatarsal injury in my foot. Right. Like many other times in previous years, got injured and then basically take a few months off. So I ended up marshalling um, at Strimmon that's right, um, right. Yeah. so I waved everybody into the, the yeah. field but you ascend up to yeah. the, the checkpoint so that year I, you know Marshall and it was great to see everybody running past mm. and you know it was a beautiful day that day Yeah, not a beautiful day for wandering around watching runners run <laughs> less beautiful if in the second half of the race when it's really hot but um, so that was a kind of lesson of kind of overdoing it and not listening to my body and you know overtraining and so I came back in 2014. No, to the end of 2013 I did the devil for the first time off one month's training because of, I was trying to get you know, this this I had a foot bone injury to my foot which metatarsalgia on my foot and it just wouldn't clear up. So I basically took off until the beginning of July before the Devil of the Highlands. And in that spring I changed my diet um, just for kind of health reasons and also you know the thought of trying to help my running too. And so I basically gave myself one month, you know, eventually one month before I was already entered into the race, really wanted to do the devil. And I kind of kept on waiting and waiting and waiting to do the race, but my foot wasn't injured, it mended. So I eventually just I had to start training. So I trained for a month and did the race. And uh, I did my longest run, like, a 60-miler, like 10 days before the race, and then I tapered for 10 days, well, nine days. and that year was the heavy rains and stuff like that. It was awful weather for most people, but I'd, I'd done the Stucka Cornfield race that year in, in much worse weather. So it really was just a doddle. Mm. I loved it. Mm. And I ran by heart rate, and that one, approximately. Not actually very disciplined. So at the hills, I was running too hard, you know, compared to what I know now. Um, but I finished about an hour faster than I expected. You know, I'd done a month's training. I wasn't expecting a good performance mm. at all. And somehow I pulled it out of the bag. Mm and that was a revelation Um, so previously I'd always kind of thought oh you had to do all these big 30 mile runs and back to back 30 milers to to even conceive of doing something like the West Highland Way Mm. so to actually go and run away a race well off a a tiny amount of training Mm. um, was like oh okay so I followed the double with I did the River Airway and that year it was actually war so going uphill and I ran a good race in that one, and I started to use the heart rate monitor again, and actually I was getting more disciplined with it and getting better results. And then I did the Jebra Three Peaks, and actually I beat your time. Yeah, hey, well done. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't expect that at all because, you know, I've often seen John's times as being kind of an aspirational figure. And so um, I was like, okay, perhaps I'm not so bad at this running after all. And I don't think that was your best race, so it's quite an easy one, potentially <laughs> to take a scalp on. But it was kind of my mentality changed. Mm. And so previously, like, I'd always been like, I always get injured. You know, I try a bit of training, try some structured training and get injured and then have to pull out of races or just, you know, have to get back into training three weeks before a race and the race goes badly because of it. So to actually do a whole series of races and training in between it and not get injured and run the race as well. So I ran three really good races. And that was, you know, you know, it started off with the devil and it was just kind of a whole autumn kind of races went really, really well. Mm. So it was kind of suddenly, perhaps, I can take on the big one. Yeah. And of course it had been looming. Uh, a friend, Steve Field from Calendar, had done the race twice. And he'd always said, yeah, one day you're going to do the West Highland way. And I always thought, like, 95 miles, that's a crazy distance. <laughs> and But I got to the point now that actually perhaps I might better get away and do the training. Mm. I wouldn't want to do it and not do it justice. And so that's really, I guess, the end of 2013 when I just started to get, OK, Right, I'm starting to understand how to, to train and how to, to race these races. And so I prepared myself and actually did my biggest miles of monthly training. So I did a couple of couple hundred mile months for me at that stage. I think my biggest month was in February um, in 2014 of um, 12 miles. For me, you know, for some people, that's a tiny amount. Mm. But for me, that you know, running 50-plus mile weeks and a couple of 60, 70 mile weeks in, amongst those was a big change. Mm. And when I did the Highland Flink um i kind of when you're actually training for the west highland Way race your mentality changes totally that's what what i found so when i stood at the race start at the highland flink it didn't intimidate me at all Mm. it was it was kind of a training run i was racing it i was racing it full out but it was kind of well it's only 53 miles Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they, they kind of that transition in the, in the kind of the period of nine months I went from somebody who would think that 53 miles is a torturously long distance is a really really tough distance to do to one thing okay yeah bring mm. it on no mm. problem and they're kind of standing the finish you know the start line confident mm. and I also had a strategy that I had in mind that I'd run run to hate heart rate. run around enough races by that stage to know um, roughly what my heart rate would be on average for that distance so in 2012, when I ran the Heartland Fling, my average heart rate was 152, and so I thought, well, roughly about that point. So I aimed to start the race with a, you know between a heart rate of 145 and 150 for up to Drummond, up to Balmaha distance depending on how I felt, and then after that I would aim for 150 to 155. And actually, what I found that at the start of the race, my heart rate was quite high. So, I was having to hold my pace back, and people were just streaming past me. Mm. And, you know, I, I'd started off at about the 11 hour wave, mm. and uh, people were streaming past me all the way to Germany. And after Germany, people were streaming past me. Going up Connick Hill, people were still passing <laughs> me, and I'd be chatting to people. And, you know, I I'd chat to one guy on the way up, and he'd done the fling the before, and he'd done it in another 13 hours. So, and here's me chatting to him thinking, well, you know, I'm really wanting to do a sub 1030. And, you know, I think I'm capable of 1015, maybe even a sub 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my goal was a, was a sub 10. And it was just like this juxtaposition between somebody who was aligned to be, you know, three hours after where I was heading. And it's like it takes a little bit of confidence in one's self to think, mm-hmm. OK, I'm, I'm, in, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not actually going out too, too slow. But there was certainly that anxiety there. I hadn't really ever proven to myself yet that the approach of using heart rate was reasonable, you know, to do it all the way. Mm. And, but I kept on. And what I found through the race is that I guess my adrenaline levels went down. And as I was going between Balmahar and Rawadanan, I just got into my zone. Mm. And it was just joyful. <laughs> and I was running comfortably. I was walking the hills running the flats, screaming down all the the descents. One of the advantages of living in the crossics is you have lots of hills, so you can practice descents, and you really strengthen up your quads for it, and also just be able to relax and just fall downhill, effectively, in a kind of controlled manner. So I was just eating up the miles, and very quickly, we're getting near denon and I was actually... So all those people who streamed past you... Yeah, I was overtaking consistently. From Balmahar onwards, it was just overtaking, overtaking, overtaking... And there was one point just before Ravadanan that a girl fell and I came around a corner and there was other runners around her and I was just before that I was in like a a a real bliss state you know I was in the zone I was listening to all the birds I was looking at all the flowers I was just just loving every single second of it and then suddenly to see a fellow Mm. runner down and suddenly my mood went from best ever to like you know she had people with her and we weren't fast the um A's day, the, the to Rowden, in and so i went on and uh, you know to get help and you know but that was just so shocking you know there was just so much empathy of yeah. me came out for her and there's nothing i could do for her you know she had help with her um but you know you, when you're a fellow runner you know how much it means just to be part of a race like Harlan fling yeah. and that was it took me until I got to round end and I had to kind of, in my head, get back into the zone of, of running a race mm. because, you know, it was just... I, I was just gutted for her, really. I, you know, I was just... Like somebody just pulled the rug underneath my feet. You know, I, I just just felt for her and kind of empathised with, you know, what she was must have been going through, not just mm. the physical pain, but also just you've been training for something and for it just to go like that. Yeah. So... I kind of got myself together, and the rest of the race just kept on getting better. I had a bit of cramp between um, Rawden and, and Ben Glass, I guess, from in the Inversnade section a little bit. Um, but actually, I was just kept on overtaking people, and I ran the section to um, Ben Glass, so all the rocky bits. That just went really smoothly, and I got to Ben Glass. And, you know, before that, my, my split times. Were maps ten fifteen, time, and I was expecting to get to Ben Glass at ten fifteen pace still, and it suddenly was like ten hours, and like oh how did that happen? Mm. <laughs> I was suddenly fifteen minutes ahead of where I expected yeah. to be, yeah. and so suddenly I had to make a quick call to my parents who were going to meet me at the finish. I'm going to be there possibly sub ten, so I was been talking about ten fifteen as the most likely time. I was aiming you know what mm. I could do, on a good day, so. Um, I just went with it basically, okay, and I kept on pushing it as much as I could but um, not too hard, I kept on going by the heart rate and at that stage I was still running well and I was getting a bit discomfort from the hip flexors Mm. and the calves a bit Um, my quads were fine and energy levels were just, I could could feel they were just starting to lower so the effort level was having to go up um, but I was still actually a lower effort level than any other previous ultra have done. Mm. Um, so I kind of... I was and, still up for so it. mentally still, I was there. In, in, and you're in, still catching people? Yeah, yeah, still catching so that, people. That's positive, isn't it? Yeah, I was overtaken by one girl right. who, you know, we, we, she, we jogged together for a little while and she, she'd actually slowed down a lot between Inver and Ben Glass. So I think she was actually basically better runner than me, but mm. she was actually be basically taking it easy over the rough stuff. And she just pulled away quite absolutely I think she had, had a quite a long break in at Ben Glass as well. And I was kind of well do I keep with her mm. um or do I let her go? And I was kind of I had to kind of make that decision myself, no, mm. I don't want to blow up. Because at that point, you know, I've had lots of cramp in the past. And so that was a spectra. If I if I mm. push it too hard when the fatigue gets in there my, my calves cramp up and that's the end of r- racing basically so I was kind of very aware of pushing the fatigue too much mm. and so I just let it go but everyone else I was catching yeah. and you know I I think I caught up and it just it just went really well basically mm. I, I really strong to the finish um there's on my blog there's actually two pictures which are one at the start in Magda Park when I was being overtaken by lots of people while I was hunkered down and just trying to just run within myself and just run comfortably but I wasn't really I guess I was tired Mm. and you know it's six in the morning um (laughs) so I just wasn't in the zone and then you know you get to a picture of me at mile 51 and I was actually looking stronger And then, you know, I was actually running at probably two-minute mile pace faster than most people around me. Mm. And the surprising thing is, if you look at people around me and me, at that point, I was running much more comfortably. Mm. So I was running faster, but I was also just running, just, it was much less effort. You know, so that's what surprised me. I was expecting with a kind of heart rate pacing to you know, have to be running much harder in the second half to make up the same pace as somebody run at a more typical kind of Mm -hmm. faster start and a slower finish. I was expecting, if I was going to level it off and actually run at the same pace throughout the whole race, Mm -hmm. which was my aim, um, that my level of effort, because it would be so much faster than other people for the same finishing time at that point, would have to be much higher. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. And that quite surprised me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. Obviously, that's... that's, uh, a nice bonus.
0: Yeah. And you finished in nine hours, 43.
1: Yeah. 24. That was a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I know. I, four hours beforehand, I was convinced I was 10 hours, 15. Mm. If I was going to keep up that pace, 10 hours, 15.
0: Yeah.
1: To then take away half an hour from mm. that in, you know, from basically, um, down and onwards, basically the second half yeah. is where I made all that time up. Um, Particularly every single stage, basically, I was making it up, you know, like 10 minutes faster um, of the last stage. Mm.
0: Okay, so you had a great fling that really surprised you and helped you and and worked on the heart rate. So, going into the West Highland Way race, was that going to be very much more of the same? And did you want to uh, aim for that?
1: Yeah, I I kind of. One of the reasons I wanted to race the fling was that I wanted to know um, what pace i might be able to do for the, the west island way race hmm. and you had done some spreadsheet analysis and come up with a 2.19 figure is that if yeah. i'm right yeah. between the, the fling time so if i got a faster <laughs> fling time then then my west island way time could be faster hey. hey yeah and so that kind of predicted well you can probably do the summers now but i think it was 20 hours 15 or something so i thought well that's a reasonable chance but that's on average Mm. you know a lot of people don't race the fling so they're yeah. actually the ratio might be different mm. so I was expecting you know the probability of a higher ratio than that and also I'd never run that type of distance before so again I was thinking well yeah. to get that ratio and also um, in previous races I hadn't really converted my sh- my my kind of 10k speed to ultra speed very well you know some people can do it very well like Debbie Martin Kasani she, she's amazingly good at that kind of level of resilience to keep yourself going mm. at a decent pace. And previously, you know, my races, I just hadn't converted it. Um, but the the fling time was a glimpse, perhaps, okay, I might be there. And, and I certainly looked at my fling time and compared it to your own and Debbie's. Mm. Um, and you've got a PB of what, around about? 9.44. Uh, yeah. 9.44. Just a little slower, slower than yours. Yeah, Yeah, you, know, you have to go back. you <laughs> have to go back and beat it. <laughs> And, and Debbie's is a very similar time too mm. um, around about 9:40
0: no i think she's about 38 37 yeah so she'll tell you, you
1: had um, and both of you had a, a sub 20 hour time so you know i knew that while on average i might be able to expect a time of say 21 hours 15 minutes you know mm. and that's the average and there's a good chance i'd be much slower than that um, and if i had a really good day i might might achieve that um, and, you know, but there was this dream, sub-20 dream. Yeah. And I you know I didn't really know at all whether that was possible or not. Um, in the run-up to it, my training had gone quite well, but I hadn't, my legs just weren't recovering quick enough from the long runs to build up long runs mm-hmm. and do not big back-to-back. Back. So the biggest runs I'd done between the Fling and the West Highland race was just a series of kind of 15 and 18 miles in one week and i did an 80 mile week um so that's as much as i peaked to i was in turn trying to get 95 miles in one week Mm. because i've in in the past i've kind of run on the principle if i've got the resilience to put in 95 miles in a week then i can run 95 miles you know so if i can run training 53 miles then i can run the fling type Mm. of thing it's a crude there's no science behind it it's just (laughs) nice round numbers Mm. um so i knew i was kind of not quite the training that I would have liked to have done. And also, if you compare myself to a lot of the people around me, they've been putting, not, you know, not necessarily more weekly miles, but certainly the big back-to-backs and stuff like that, or big long runs, and, you know, people doing recce runs on the West Highland Way, or, you know, doing it over two or three days. And I hadn't done any of that. And, but, you know, something clicked, and then kind of week before is it. the kind of, doesn't care. You no, know, I don't care about it anymore. It just doesn't matter. The, the training's done. What's done is done. Mm. It's race day. And so it came up and I, I've done some analysis of different splits. Um, and I've looked at the, the 2014 finishes. Uh, and so I have pretty space based on these specificities of race Three, three? The top three. Mark mm. and Matt Williams. Matt Williams. That's disgraceful isn't it? Hello. Oh dear West End, Lord Okay, anyway, so I, I've done all these splits and I looked at the averages as well. So I, I'd i written a blog article so if people want to look it up, they can probably find the article I wrote beforehand and I also printed them out and gave them to my team about what I might, do, might be able to expect. And I really didn't know what type of splits I would do. You know, I'd know I'd run by heart rate, and I was hoping that would give me, you know, a decent ability to run strongly and in the remember second what, half.
0: What target your heart rate was for the West Highland way?
1: Well, I worked out it was going to be 140. So that was my, my target range. So uh, my range when I was running was 135 to 145. Yeah. Um, so if I could keep it in that range, then I, then I was happy. And so... In the first half, I, kind of, I also made some splits based on my fling and my double time, but adjusting them accordingly mm-hmm. um, to make it an even split between the two. And it was kind of, that was the even split one. And I, what I did is that for my team, um, the ones who did at the start, I had actually finished all that processing and I gave them a full set of splits. And they had been tracking me. And I went through German at a certain time. I think it was two hours twelve or something like that. And then Balmaha. And from that, they could select which of the different split charts were most appropriate. And they weren't telling me this, but they basically were. I was on the twenty-hour one, and the you know by Rao and I was on the twenty-hour splits, and. They also... I was coming in within two minutes or something like that on each of these splits. Mm. So they, they just started describing me as a machine, basically. I, <laughs> I would disappear. And I would disappear from Rawden and and the met them at And I was there within a couple of minutes of when they were expecting me. And, you know, it's like... <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just ridiculous. And then the same happened when I got um, up to... Uh, what's the next checkpoint? Oktatir. Oktatir, yeah. So I got there. Yeah. And between um from Ben Glass onwards but to to Ben Glass I was actually running really strongly I was running other people and I was just really enjoying it got in the zone um I think I had a couple of little problems um running into Connick Hill down to Connick Hill um on a descent I tripped I would think I it was a combination of well I guess a little bit of dusk and also the view (laughs) it's like the trail was actually even enough that I could actually just run smoothly. Mm. So I was just, like, oh, it's beautiful, yeah. lovely. Bam, <laughs> smack in the deck. So I cut my knees up, my my elbow, my wrist. Mm. So I, I kind of took it a bit more gently after that and mm. clambered into um, Bamahar and got cleaned up and then went out. and actually was still running strongly. And on the way on to on the way to Raudenon, um I had problems with midges getting my eyes, mm. and they were just awful. And so I was having to run along with my um, head tucked in, my eyes down towards the ground, and just trying to look up.
2: Yeah.
1: That was tough. Um, and I saw another runner fall um, a couple of miles before Rowdenon. So that was another thing. We kind of stopped and helped, yeah. and looked like he dislocated his shoulder. And we thought he was out for the race. He finished, he got collected his goblet, and I, that was just <laughs> astonishing. So, people, if you kind of have problems, and stuff like that, you can actually get by. Mm. You know, obviously Paul Gibbon, mm. did roughly the same thing as me, and ran with a bleeding knee through the whole race. So, um, yeah, I kind of there was that kind of psychological shock of falling and, and physical discomfort from mm. it, and having to get over that. But also mentally, I was like, well, I can't let this get to me. Um, I had to take some painkillers to keep on top of that pain. By the time I got, you know, I'd actually then ran really strongly and was just running well within my zone and my heart rate was you know doing just doing fine got to banglas just flying out from there um and what surprised me was just how many people were just sitting having a picnic at banglas and i was in race mode i wasn't running fast but mentally i was like right every checkpoint i wanted to just pick up my stuff and go i didn't want to spend any time standing around or sitting around because if i was standing and sitting around and I wanted to finish in at a certain time, that meant the average pace while running would be higher, mm. which would be more stressful on my body. So if I didn't stop, just kept on walking through at checkpoints, mm. get my staff and go, um, I could keep my average speed down and so get the stress levels down. So everything was going smoothly, but suddenly there was nobody on course. You know, I've been in a, a nice, really sociable section between um, Rowden and all the way to ben Glass. I've been running with different people. And it was just a real joy just chatting with people. Mm. And then at Ben Glass, I was on my after Ben Glass I was on my own. I didn't see anybody until I started to get to the roller coaster, you know, climbing up the roller coaster. You go through the gates just mm. above Cranlark into the woodland. And and nonny Hefferin was um, ahead of me and I was I was climbing I was climbing strongly at that point. And she turned around and she she kind of like Robert. <laughs> <laughs> she was so surprised, and she's obviously been on her own for ages as well. Yeah. And it's kind of you go through phases in the race like that. Mm. Like it's just really sociable. There's loads of people around you, and then suddenly you run for an hour, an hour and a half. There's nobody. Yeah. And so we, we spent a lot of time running together, and um, the kind of the roller coaster, and then we got to the descents, and um, I headed on, mm. and it was just nice you know catch up and mm. and just get on away and it was just it was quite warm at that point um and my feet had obviously got a little bit wet um at some point or just from sweat and my foot was starting to get sore um my, my toe was getting sore so um, when i got into off tyre um i basically stopped for a proper stop i go i checked weight in you checked and weighed in, checked, weighed in. Um, I was still on my 20 hour splits <clears throat> but then I had basically a 10 minutes 5-10 well, minutes stop sorting out my foot which is frustrating because mm-hmm. um, then you know, do you try and catch up I knew that no that's the wrong thing to do that if I did try and catch up the time I would just burn more glycogen and, and get more dehydrated and mm-hmm. not be able to process so much in the way of food and drink um, so I just stuck to the plan. You know, just stuck to heart rate. And none had overtaken me and quite a few other people had overtaken me during my stop. And I caught them up just as we went um, past the, um, the finish of the fling. And that was, you know, when you've never done longer than the fling before, obviously, you do the fling, you get to that point, mm. And it's quite, it's, it's, it's a real kind of defining point mm. of you're now into the unknown. Okay. You've never run this far before. But I was kind of mentally in a good place mm. i was in more pain than i expected um partly because of my toe but also my legs and stuff just you know i'd run much more easily you know an hour slower to a time than i'd done in the flink and you know actually a bit more than that, an hour and a quarter slower and i was expecting like it'll be easy by <laughs> that point but it wasn't it was actually hurting by that point um but not badly but my energy levels are really good and psychologically i was really good i think the two are connected mm. um quite strongly connected it's much easier to be positive when your blood sugar levels are up you you know you, you don't have gastric stress and stuff like that you can actually deal with the discomfort as long as there's not too many discomforts mm. um nagging away at your brain and you know you don't have if you have to actually go through the kind of mental process of trying to quell down the pain That it itself is just really taxing um but I wasn't having any problems at all. It was just, like, positive, right, going. So um, I, it was warm, and I, we got a changeover. Uh, I did two teams. So I had a first half and a second half team. So I met the second half team. And because they have been tr- tracking my progress, Evan was really kind of... He's a machine. He's, you know, he's doing his best splits. Mm. And this point, I was actually on a h- splits that had not been done for in the West Island way before. You know, people always ran the second half slower as a pace than the first half. I hadn't actually come across any of the races I'd analysed. And so my first half team had my final splits, but the second half team, they'd actually, I'd given them some splits at the pub when we did the briefing early in the week, and I'd only had Marco's splits at that point. And they'd been looking at that, and they'd been like, oh, I've been catching up. I've been behind, like, 21 hours and then slowly getting lower. So it was down to, like, 21, 2130. So I went from one team who was telling me I was on 20 hours. <laughs> and then the next team, the next checkpoint, I was at 21, uh, you know, well, um, for 2030. And I thought, well, how was that lost? I, mean, I lost some time because of the the repair um, to my foot but to, to fix the blister. But um, that was confusing. I didn't know at that point mm. that not everything had been transferred across. Right and so they had been following online with this sheet and everything was following and i think another another thing about that, that slightly threw me um but on the positive side when i got to Tindrum. um steve field who'd done the west highway before he was on the second half support crew he asked me what i wanted and it was like ice cream so um, he basically went and got uh, an ice cream for me and mm. so i walked up the hill out of time to eating an ice cream i mean, how brilliant is that <laughs> um you know it, it's fuel it's helping me but also it's just it's a hot day it's yeah. just really nice mm. and when you're i don't know when you've got low blood sugar slightly low blood sugar but your stomach's still good actually it's just really tasty mm. and so i was kind of and the, and as i kind of left up the hill there i said what else do i ask him on and I thought bacon buddy <laughs> it's like
2: hey party time
1: <laughs> and so off I went up the hill and I was catching people still and it was just going my like clockwork really and the team could see that was happening mm. and you know beforehand I'd, I'd kind of gone through in theory how I wanted the race to go and it was happening that way and so they were in a real buzz that mm. actually yeah he's a bit geeky super sciencey and, and, and yeah blah 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 talks too much for sure um but it was actually happening and i it was kind of i wasn't expecting it It was you know you know you can make these ideas and plans up but to actually be doing them is, is another thing altogether and so uh, got into Bridge of walkie running strongly oh uh, just before Bridge of walkie i've got my bacon butty that uh, was brilliant and the, the um rob attimer and, and steve fielder and that support crew they came up and they really enjoyed taking me this bacon butty because they passed a couple of runners and of course the smell of yeah. this bacon butty oh <laughs> I couldn't have any so there's me uh, trying to um, stuff this bacon butty down um, before I got to Bridge of Walkie I did just in time um, but that was it, was it was in hindsight actually quite difficult to eat bacon um, on the run and it's really not the most healthy of foods um, but um, just just just, it's just fun to do something like that. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily the best race food, um, But we were just having a ball, all of us. And I got to uh, Bridget Walkie and I saw my family for the first time. So uh, my, my daughter had been doing viola practice, my youngest daughter. Um, so they all came up after viola. I think actually, she did a concert. I, unfortunately, I missed the concert because of the West Island <laughs> Way race. And so they all came up. So I saw them for the first time, trying to encourage them to run. But I was in race mode, and yeah. I was kind of hoping they would run with me, but they didn't. And <laughs> uh, So I went through the checkpoint and then up the hill. And for the first time in the race, I was kind of walking up the hill, and my rate was starting to go mm-hmm. down below my zone. I was like, no, I want to walk now. You know, I've, I yeah. ran almost 60 miles, yes. I I need a walking break. You know, <laughs> from when you get to the top of the hill above Tyndrum it's downhill pretty mm. all the way. There's a couple of mm. little undulations, but it's all really runnable. Mm. So there's no excuse to walk. <laughs> and when you're running into heart rate and you've got heart rate zone, there's no excuse for, you know, you, you, you know if you do walk at all, very quickly your heart rate gets down below unless you're going uphill. And my experience in the devil two years before um, was that that ascent out of Bridge of Walkie was steep enough mm. that I was exceeding my heart rate if I was jogging at all. And I'd have to walk. Uh, but here I was actually finding that I was walking uphill and my heart rate was down like 120 or something like that and like oh okay I have to jog that occasionally I was trying to eat at the same time and so that was kind of a surprise because that late in the race I was expecting my heart rate just to continue to go up and my pace to continue mm-hmm. to fall um, and at the top of the uh, remember the name of the hill? What's the name of the hill? Jelly Beaner Hill. What's the name of the actual
0: hill itself? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. You go down into... Um, uh, the hotel down there is yeah. in
1: Yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, well, basically, I got to the top. i got my jelly baby. Mm. And I, um, Karen Mackay came down. And she gave me a race, race briefing. Mm. And she told me that Paul Gibbon was in Kinloch, <laughs> And it's like that's just an impossible thing you know when you're in a, in a in any normal race yeah you might be beaten by an elite <laughs> runner by you know 10k by say five minutes or something like that like 10 <laughs> minutes and you know say a mile mile and a half mm. and the fling it might be 10 miles but then for somebody to be a marathon ahead of you in a race <laughs> you know you're running really well your best race of your life very really well and somebody's a marathon ahead, <laughs> you know. You know, at that point, it's probably over for you. You're not going to be on the podium. Um, but it's just like so inspiring. Yeah. You know, the you know he Paul did a stupendous race mm. back in, in 2013, but then to exceed it such mm. a large margin, and then of course he didn't found out that at Robbie Britain mm. was doing an extraordinary race as well. Yeah. Stupid pacing, <laughs> he'll admit himself, suicidal, but two extraordinary runners. Yeah able to to do that and you know i was running strong i was running all the sense really strongly and all that but you know to have that different league you know it was inspiring it wasn't at all belittling it was no. just great you know it's nice to be part of an event like that when somebody's doing something special you know you're doing something special yourself there's other people doing special but you know paul you know just raising, raising the bar you know it's it's great to see so i kind of then Kind of the it clouded over a bit after that. It had been really warm, so it clouded over and I was going across Rannoch Moor and I found my heart rate going down again and some of the kind of ascents going up to Rannoch Moor, I was kind of looking forward to them because, you know, it's the furthest ever ridden, you know, run you know, 65 miles on your leg and you're like, okay, I want have an occasional walking break, please. But the kind of heart rate was just, you know, at the low end. You know, it was going down below 140 and it's like, oh, god, keep on running, keep on running. And, you know, it, Moore's such long distances and you could see you know i couldn't is that runner ahead and it's, it's quite nice to have runners ahead and you can reel in mm. and you know at that point people because paul was so far ahead but he people had support runners so you wouldn't know whether is that two runners ahead or is a runner support and i only passed a couple of people on Moore. but you know they were like a mile ahead and then mm. slowly catch them up and i passed a couple of runners and they, they reckoned I was a relay runner or something. <laughs> Too fresh to be uh, at this stage. And, you know, I think that was down to the, the pacing, really. Mm. And, you know, just getting nutrition and, and everything right. Um, I was still basically running really strongly and really committed. Um, I was a bit confused about the signals with the, the splits. Mm. Um, you know, my sport team were really pleased at, you know, 2030. But having thought I was on 20-hour splits for so long, it was quite frustrating. Mm um but it just kept on going you know just kept in the the zone and I kept on thinking in my head you know when I was in the heart rate zone I was like I'm in the zone kind of affirmative type message to Mm. keep on pushing on and I basically you know ran strongly right into um Glencoe my family were there as well and they took a little video of me and I I was really focused at that point um in in my zone base i was really enjoying it but but still really focused on it i was racing and so i kind of went past them and went to the checkpoint and and then said hi but i didn't stop and they took a little video and i actually trip slightly and coming up and my, my girls when they see it they laugh out loud every single time <laughs> they trip and they're like, you know i almost fell over there I, I think they like the most of the fact i tripped um yeah, but it's kind of... I didn't even know I tripped. I was only when looking at the video afterwards. I was just so focused. Yeah. You know, just like... I guess you kick a lot of stones when you're mm. running at a decent pace and you're a bit tired. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was like getting to Glencoe, everything. And then they, had, they gave me some um, tanktastics. And then that was like, oh, gorgeous! Lots of <laughs> flavours and it kind of... Um, yeah, I was still feeling good at that point. I think I, my guts at that point... Um, my, my large intestine was starting to think, Okay, this is not normal. <laughs> You're not being very friendly to me. So I was in a bit of discomfort that way. My my body was kind of well worn, but you know, my mind was totally in it. You know, I was still right, okay, let's reel this twenty hours in. I was still, you know, mm. wanting to do the impossible. And it was just going really well. And I ran strongly to um, the bottom of Devil's Staircase. And just as I was um, just catching what um, I then later found out it was um, Pizarre Higgins in, in third place. And before that, every single runner I'd been catching had just given up. They were just running their pace, and I was running a minute mile, mm. two minute mile faster. And it was just straight past you know, high-end stuff, but it was there was no kind of response, no competing. Mm. Um, was I would get a bit closer to Kazaya and she would move you know should the distance wouldn't get smaller you know I was getting smaller much slower than anybody else. so she was actually um, responding and I, I got into the bottom of um, about 10 metres behind about this point at uh, the bottom of the dental staircase and the blister on my toe my right foot burst so I went from kind of tolerable pain in my foot to intolerable so uh, I stopped and sat down and and got it, bandaged it up basically, and sewed back together. And support team did a great job in a really quick pit stop. It was only about three or four, you know, that that amount of time. It was only a couple of minutes Mm. time, Um, but of course, because I was already up the hill at that stage, and so got my food when I went, and I was in pain Mm. um, for my my toe, but it just went away. You know, just eased off. I guess just endorphins keep on going up and up and up and, and you can tolerate, you know. I think part of it also I was expecting to be in pain and I was in less pain than I was expecting to be in. And you read lots of race sports and people, you know, there's these big mental struggles at a certain point in a race. Mm. And, you know, to be, you know, 75 miles into a race and still strong, my first race that distance is just like, well, that's not right. (laughs) This is a bit of a charmed life. And I I basically um, walked up um, most of the way up to the top of Double Staircase quite strongly and was catching Cazaire. And then once we started descending, I was catching her. But again, she wasn't giving up. Mm. And once we got to the uh, fire track, you know, from the rocky stuff and the fire track, I eventually caught her up. And she... her and her support team ran, uh, ran around and turned around and she was she was just really happy because I was a bloke basically <laughs> <Right. laughs> because she, she had been quite like 20 or 30 miles or might even longer 40 miles she had been competing for fourth uh, for third place right. um, and the woman had actually who was in fourth place and had been pushing her on had actually stopped and I'd overtaken her at King's House mm. so I didn't know this battle was going on mm. I was just running yeah. Um, So anyway, I I kind of, you know, I I chatted a little bit to Josiah and then I just powered on. I was running the the sense really strongly and it was quite nice to have a trail that you could run comfortably. Mm -hmm. Some of it's a bit too steep to to run entirely comfortably, but I was still running strongly. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm running strongly. I'm 20 hours back on. And I got into Kinlopledon and almost as soon as I got into the flat... I just had shooting pains in the front of my car, mm. um, kind of the front of my just below my knee, and I could not run. Mm. So it was a case of, okay, <laughs> this is about unfortunate because I was just like mentally I was there, mm. energy levels were superb, and you know, um, you know, I'd been eating food and drinking food and everything, but just like tasted great and it was just working really well. And then suddenly I couldn't run I was mm-hmm. in, when I tried to run, I was in excruciating pain, and you know I'd run for ten meters, and the pain would just get worse and worse and worse and so I had to walk mm-hmm. through the woodlands and then to the um checkpoint, and as I got to the checkpoint, I went through the doors because I and her support runner just ran past me. Yeah. <laughs> they were still in competing mode now at that point, like okay, this is I'll finish, but I, it's kind of. Okay, now I'm thinking, how long is it going to take me to walk 15 miles? Um, okay, work out four or five hours. Okay, so I was thinking about 22 hours. Finishing time, that's still pretty reasonable. I, mean, I was thinking 20, sub-24 mm-hmm. was in my bronze. So I was actually still, I think I was still, well, like, silver was like 22 hours. So I was like, oh, actually pretty decent. I'm happy with that. You know, I have to walk in, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. And I got another ice cream I can off leave that was delicious again. Um and I walked uh, actually um, in Kinlochleven. Um we basically got checked in at the same time because I, I left first and because I obviously topped up with food and I got in through Kinlochleven and up the hill before she did. But I guess she was, you know, 30 meters behind. But when we walking up the hill, I could walk perfectly comfortably. Mm. So I ascended just fine, no problems at all. I had plenty of energy levels. Um, yeah, I was in discomfort mostly, and my right calf. Um, I was kind of the front, just almost my shin muscle, kind of on the side. um It was painful when I was running, but when I was walking, not much pain. So I was still in a good place. I could still tolerate it. So I got to the top, and as soon as we got to the flat, I tried to run, mm. and it was a huge amount of pain. You now I'd run for ten meters, and then I'd stop, and okay, then right I can't run the flats so what if I can run the I had to walk a bit and walk at the ascents and on the descents I would try and jog a little bit but again it was like five ten meters and the distance I could get wasn't improving and and because I overtook us and then a couple of other runners overtook me and then you know after having been overtaking people for Mm. all the way from Balmaha and not a single person overtaking me and that was kind of it didn't get me down, but it was a bit of a shame not to be competing, mm. and you know, getting so close to what I was expecting. And just before I got, I got to um, the Tizer stop, and a woman there had some this kind of blue, purpley gel, and I may mention it. I saw a leg, not really expecting any particular help. I'd already been on painkillers by that stage, mm. and they weren't helping sufficiently to get me running. Um, and you should put this stuff on. It was like a cooling gel, and we right, might as well try it. And so off I went, and it didn't help for the first two or three miles. And so I, I got almost within about a mile of the checkpoint, and then I, every single descent I would try it and get jogging again, and you know I'd fail and I'd be you know in a lot of pain, have to walk to the bottom of it, which is really frustrating when you've got the energy mm. and the rest of your muscles and everything is good, you're ready to compete. But a certain part of your body's just not saying that's okay. But then it just started to ease off. So I got into um, the, to to see you Mm -hmm. at um, Londavra. And it was great to see you. And the thing is, I'd I'd stopped competing by that stage. Every single checkpoint before that, apart Mm -hmm. from the ones where I'd had my blisters seen to, I'd chanced through. So I spent a couple of minutes chatting to you. And then I, you know, I, I was out of race mode. And then I walked up the hill with my um, my support crew, expecting to walk all the way to the finish. And then um, maybe jog a little bit of it. And at that point, I was walking up. And then I actually meant to get a, a battery um, charger for my phone. Mm. Um, and I'd forgotten that. And I checked my phone how much battery life was left in it and It went dead. So I had to say to my support guys, can you just run back? And get it, and I'll keep on walking, and you just catch me up. And I was actually walking quite strongly, so they both went down, and Rob came back and ran after me, and he ran up the hill, a good old pelt, and he couldn't see me because I actually you know, it starts undulating yeah. after that, and he kept on facing me. and Oh no, he's got too far away, and um, but he kept on persevering. And eventually, just before we get to the forest, he caught caught me up, and then we started running together, and I was able to run the flats finally, mm. and it's like what um i don't know nothing when, when with the checkpoint Lundavra, you said oh you can still do 2015 mm. and on my head i was 22 hours and you said <laughs> 2015 and i'm like what yeah. <laughs> i bet you know I, I wasn't competing at that stage but um if i hadn't messed around with missing the battery and having to wait for it um I would have done 2015. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite impressive. But anyway, I got running, and the further I ran, the less pain I was in. Um, so that, that blue gel was obviously a miracle cure for me. <laughs> and I ran the descent really strongly. And then, you know, look at the trace afterwards, and I was doing sub-7-minute mile pace. <laughs> so I, I charged past um, one pair of runners um, on the kind of big um, open um, paths as they head down towards... Um, Glenn Nevis and there was another set of runners in front of me and there was a slight level before it and I was just I, was, I wasn't i was competing, I was just having a ball mm. you know, my energy levels were good I was running with my mate <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful countryside, it was still light at that point you know, it was what, half past eight at that point or something like that and you know, I had an amazing day yeah, sure, I was in a bit of pain but it was just epic mm. and we were just playing literally just playing it wasn't kind of and my heart rate had gone up to like one six five or something like that you know all day I'd been keeping it down to one four five, and they're like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> just screaming downhill at this ridiculous pace and then the 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 next guy ahead he obviously didn't want to lose his place so he, he kept you know distance you know he basically so he responded and then we hit the flats and you could see him and his sport crew were looking over the shoulder and they're like I'm just at that point. I kind of I was like, I'm just playing in this. I don't really care what place I come in and what <laughs> time I come in. You know, I've gone out, I've gone out of competing mode. I was just mm. playing, and so I kind of just made a conscious thing like, okay, we'll just let's not mess around, let's just get in mm. in, a, in a good state. So I, I basically got back into my heart rate zone, and yeah, in theory, I could have pushed it on a bit more, but mm. um, I was just really happy to be there feeling great and the the finish um was just brilliant you know i was running strongly to the finish mm. and that's not what i expected you know you can plan for these things you can like picture them in your head and stuff like that for actually to do it mm. especially after you know having an injury that seemed to be a that's a door closed so that was just amazing I and mean, to get to the finish and be a finisher yeah uh, you know it, it's like yeah, you dream about it for for you know nine months. You train for it very seriously for six months, and then it happens, mm-hmm. and it comes comes in on you know where your best expectations were. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, congratulations, and I think from what you're saying, there's obviously more to come, and that sub twenty has definitely uh, yeah. Yeah, I is, think this l- last
1: year if it hadn't been for the injury, mm-hmm. and it hadn't been for the blisters yeah. either one of those. If the not either of those not happened, I would have done sub twenty. Yeah, and. I I had been hearing about Johnny Fling ahead, the naked runner. My support crew didn't know Johnny, so they didn't Mm. know who it was. Um, But I had these tales every time i go into a checkpoint. He'd be like 10, 15 minutes ahead. And I was actually catching him. Between uh, Mm -hmm. Kinloch I'd actually, even despite my um, stop, my blister, I'd actually eaten a lot of time in Mm. to John. So if I'd actually been able to continue running strongly we are we would have been coming in around about the same time mm. and that would have been fun one mm. you know have a chat with johnny and Tanya and get all the, all the sport crews but it'd be interesting to see what whether we've been competitive or not yeah. um whether we've actually driven either, either to faster time i don't know mm. um but it's kind of
0: unanswered I'm, questions
1: yeah so yeah. it's kind of i aerobically my aerobic fitness I think, was was good for about a 9.45, 9.40 time, 9.35 maybe. Um, And it was my resilience, my structural resilience, my muscles, which wasn't good enough in the day. And my shoe choice, in hindsight, I I went for a a, a pair of shoes with a lot of cushioning. Um, It was a Nike Wild Horse. But the toe box is really shallow. Mm. And I'd gone for a size 7.5 to try and give me more room. But in hindsight, it was actually too shallow and it was actually rubbing on the top of my toe. And that's I ended up losing a toenail because of it, and that's what caused the blisters. Nice. And so, yeah, different shoe choices. So pay more, you know, pay pay heed of, um, you know, the toe box. Yeah. Well, look,
0: it. Robert, uh, it's now twenty past ten, so Ooh. your your daughter might well be ringing at any moment, okay. and. Uh, I was thinking maybe half an hour to chat about your story, and I think we're about one hour 14. Yeah. So that's fine. No, it's fine. If people don't want to listen, they can switch off. But um, I'm really keen just to, um, the last few minutes that we've got, just to think about your race strategy, because that's something that you've really helped me with over these last two years. Um, Those who've followed my blog know my story. I've been very much on splits, and I love analyzing the race, and I love to break it all up. Um, But I've had a couple of tough years in 2012 and 2013, yeah, 2011 and 2012. And then the last couple of years, I've changed my tactics a little bit and tried to enjoy them a bit more, trying to finish strong. And last year doing the Hardmore series, you really helped me with just thinking about what what heart rates I should aim for. And then particularly the race two weeks ago with the hardmost 55, I took it to another level. And I aimed for 137 with a five beat uh, either side. And it really paid off for me big time. Um, and that's caused quite a, little, quite a bit of debate on my blog and the Facebook. And a few people, including Stuart Mills and others who've uh, put different comments. So I just wanted just to get a few thoughts from you about why you feel um, running to heart rate you know, I don't want to say it's the best way because everyone's got their own way of running and there must be different ways. But why do you think it's a good way to try and approach an ultra?
1: The, it's kind of really kind of listening to the, the physiology of your body, what your, what your body goes through during an ultra. And what your body's trying to do um, is survive, basically. Um, and you got to have a lot of systems in your body. That your kind of the subconscious systems. They, um, they kind of might be hormonal, or they might be to do with your nervous system. Um, they might be you know, there's a concept of a central governor um, in, in kind of sports science. Tries to kind of collect some of the kind of um, kind of brain functions which are subconscious that kind of monitor how your your body's doing. So looking at different things like your blood temperature is, is one thing. It's your body temperature is measuring your blood glucose levels. Another one, and your body tries to keep these in equilibrium. Organs like your brain, you know, if your brain's not functioning, you die. Okay, so that's a pretty important thing to do. So your body tries to actually regulate that. And if your blood sugar level gets too low, what the central governor does, well, the the, the theory behind it, anyway, at least the model, is that it creates an emotion of fatigue um, to slow you down. And if you slow down, then other systems in your body can start, like your liver can start actually producing glycogen. Into your bloodstream, or it can start converting protein in your bloodstream to um, blood sugar and uh, through a process called glucogenesis. So, if you slow down, you can let your body just get everything back in equilibrium. Same with heat. If you're too hot, if you slow down, your muscles stop generating the heat, you start cooling down, mm. and you start getting back to a safer level. And so, you've got this kind of safety mechanisms built into the body. Now, the central governor isn't just kind of like a, 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 a dumb thermostat when you set to a certain temperature. It is influenced by your own um, expectations and desires, and you can actually program it. So, you know, people who are actually kind of when you try to mentally kind of prepare for a race and stuff like that, you'll actually be helping kind of tune up your central governor to allow you to actually do you know, work at a certain level. And if you race. And you know, do lots of races again. Your central governor is kind of learning just how far it can push itself out out equilibrium and still be safe. Mm. And I think you can actually learn, and it starts to trust you. Basically, if you actually start, you know, if you start treating your body well, then your central governor will actually work, let you work much closer to limit. But if you actually start treating your body poorly, then your central governor will start thinking, "Okay, we're in danger now." And it will start creating a lot more fatigue to slow you down to take you out of danger, because almost all cases of self-induced danger, physical exertion, slowing down actually helps. And the, 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 the slowest case will be actually falling over unconscious, <laughs> <laughs> In which case is like low blood pressure. So if you you know certain blood pressure goes a certain, you know, a certain um, too low, you have exercise-induced um, collapse. Uh, which is quite common in ultra runners. You know, they kind of when they stop running, they the heart, the leg pump stops working, pumping their bu- blood around the body. And of course, you're dehydrated. Your heart, your heart muscle's tired and stuff like that. And your your, your veins and stuff like that are probably dilu- um, dilated because you've been um, hot, and so your blood volume is actually kind of spread more over your bottom. So it's quite difficult to keep up your, your blood pressure. Mm. So you fall over. So there's a whole range between. You know, treating your body well and staying keeping everything as close to equilibrium as possible and you know if you exceed that too much then your body will start to shut it down so if you're racing you don't want the body to start stepping in your subconscious to step in and say actually no we don't want to play this game anymore you're taking too much risks so the idea with using the heart rate is really kind of a external way of actually finding out what's happening inside your body, mm. you know, how is it coping? So, if you have a high heart rate, you're under a lot of stress. Basically, physical or mental stress will raise your heart rate, and you can only sustain that type of that stress for a certain period. And so, if you can actually just treat your body a bit more kindly and stay closer to equilibrium, so you know things you want to maintain in equilibrium, like your blood to glucose level, and If you run a short period of a high intensity, then you're going to burn glycogen more quickly, both in the liver, which supplies the blood glucose level to maintain blood glucose level for your brain, essentially, and um, also in your muscles. So you you don't want to burn too much glycogen too quickly, especially in the liver, um, because the central governor basically will actually will kind of monitor how much glycogen is left in your liver. And do a calculation on how long, how, how long is that going to last? And you keep on working at high intensity, then it's not going to last as long. Mm. Um, so it's going to rain that in more quickly. And but if you can actually maintain that level, then the central governor won't step in. It won't create fatigue. And the other side of things with the your body temperature. If your core body temperature goes too high, you have to sweat a lot more. And also, when you're Body temperature is too high, your muscles are no longer at an optimal working level for actually um, aerobic metabolism, and your actual fat burning level goes down. So, quite quickly, you start burning a lot more um, glycogen when you're actually hot than when you're actually just a degree cooler, you know, a small amount cooler. So, if you can keep your body temperature even, then you can keep much more in the fat burning zone than a glycogen burning zone. So, that's another reason why you don't want to push it too much. So if you get too hot, you burn a lot more. Glow. Like a hot day, you get more exhausted more quickly. Partly it's dehydration, but also it's partly the fact that your body shifts more across the glycogen. And that's one of the reasons why you need to be very careful on, 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 you know, on hot days, is that you've got to keep in that fat burning zone. So actually easing off, especially on the uphills, is when you generate the most heat. Mm. And your body temperature doesn't come down immediately as soon as you stop working hard your body temperature stays high. So if you you go up hard up a hill, your body temperature goes up and your ability to burn fat is then suppressed for as long as your body temperature is up. So it takes a while to get your body temperature down. Mm. And so if you can avoid it getting too high in the first place, then you never, you know, your fat burning actually can um, just stay there working efficiently.
2: Mm.
1: So, you know, there's this... Also, if you can actually avoid too much elevated stress levels you you know if you're working really hard a lot of your blood will actually go to your muscles delivering oxygen and getting rid of the carbon dioxide to get them to work that hard now the blood is diverted away from the stomach and your stomach isn't like there's not two paths for um, fluids and for solids you have basically your bowel basically starts at your mouth um goes down to your stomach And in your stomach, then you start breaking down food, and then after your stomach, you've got the small intestine, uh, which is very narrow but quite long, and you know, wiggled up inside you. Then you have your large bowel. So the the small intestine extracts all the nutrients, so all the the proteins and fats and carbohydrates you'll absorb in that small intestine, and then the large bowel is there to absorb the water, and it'll actually squeeze the food. So it's quite a muscular process, squeezing the food to get the the actual water out of it, and if your stomach shuts down, the whole thing shuts. And that's when you get that kind of sloshy feeling in your stomach, that's typically when you've drunk and eaten stuff. And your stomach's slowed down. It's no longer clearing. Because your body's diverting all the blood elsewhere. You don't want that if you're running an ultra, you want to actually to keep both the fluids coming in from your stomach and the the energy. But if you run too hard, got too hot, then um, your stomach starts slowing down. Yeah. Another a factor is adrenaline levels. So if, you're, you know, if you have high adrenaline levels, that's great. It kind of dilates blood vessels, uh, reduces your perception of pain, um, raises your heart rate, everything which is great for actually running short races. But when it comes to large races, um, one of the side effects of um, adrenaline is that it actually diverts blood flow away from the stomach. So if you're running at, you know, if you are running at too high adrenaline levels, then actually your digestion slows down. That's why people get the uh, the runs to the toilet before the start of a race because basically your your stomach's shutting down and you know you're not not absorbing that water that you should be doing because it's a muscular process. So you, you know, that doesn't get any. Mm. And also the way that the, the stomach works, it's it's highly dependent on glucose, blood sugar. It doesn't, it's not, you know, it doesn't burn fat. You know, your muscles can burn fat, especially your heart. and Your, your diaphragm are very good at, at burning uh, pretty well any fuel that comes by um, and very, very, you know, very slow twitch fiber is so great for burning fat. Uh, but your brain and your stomach, they rely on glucose. In extreme cases, you can get into ketosis um, where your body starts, the liver starts breaking down fat cells into smaller kind of fat units called ketones. And they can actually go and be, be used by the brain. But not entirely, it's still will use some glucose. But that's in a real extreme case, you don't really want to get there mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mostly, you want your blood sugar to, to support your brain and your gut. And if you start diverting your blood sugar to your muscles uh, away from your stomach, then basically your, your stomach shuts down, and you stop digesting both water, both fluids and energy. And it won't do it until you slow down, basically. You, you know, get your calm down, so your adrenaline levels get lower. And slow down, so your blood's not being, you know, diverted. And get, you know, if you're actually running hard and you're hot, your blood's also having to be diverted to your skin to help yeah. lose the heat. So if you slow down, you lower your body temperature, which helps you know, more blood for basically other organs like your, your stomach. Uh, and your you bowel, the. Also, as your temperature comes down and, and your adrenaline, if you start relaxing, your adrenaline comes down. You know, blood supply can go back to the stomach, and it can start processing again. Mm. So, when people get gastric stress, pretty well, the best thing to do is stop eating and drinking for a little while until you feel better, and, and slow down, mm. and walk, or just ease off the pace. And it might take half an hour, an hour. But ideally. You don't want to go there. You yeah. want to back off. And that's one of the nice things about running by heart rate yeah. is that you get an early warning that you're actually you're getting too hot or you're getting, you're yeah. pushing on too hard up a hill. Yeah. And it also helps preserve the glycogen. And also, if your body's burning a lot of glycogen, um, what happens is that your stores of glycogen in your liver start getting low and your body starts releasing cortisol to keep the balance of blood sugars going. Uh, one effect is to tell the liver to release glycogen as blood sugar, which helps; is good, but there's a limit to that. And it also starts attacking the the, the muscle cells to basically um, acquire the the protein, muscle protein, uh, and it goes through the bloodstream into the liver, and the liver then converts that to blood sugar to prop it up. So that's pretty really kind of saving the brain. Yeah. You know, the the body's cares about the brain. You know, if your brain's not functioning; you're dead. Yeah. So your muscles and everything else is secondary to that. Will, <clears throat> your body will actually start destroying your muscles and then your organs and stuff like that all steadily just to keep the brain alive because if the brain's not functioning well, game over. So if you can avoid that kind of you know, if you stop digesting food or if you're burning glycogen really quickly because you're going too hot and too, going too fast your glycogen levels in your liver will get low then your body will start releasing lots of cortisol your muscles will start getting broken down to support your blood sugar and that's you know where, that's where the energy is coming from You know, if you can't eat anymore and you're in the end of a race and you're you trying pushing on and you're, not, you're ignoring the signs to say let's walk, let's take it easy let's try and get my you know, body back into equilibrium and you keep on pushing keep on you know, trying to get there by mind of a matter what's happening is that you're just breaking the body down steadily yeah. and that's why people well, one of the reasons why people have a massive amount of um, discomfort in late in the race and you know subsequent days why the doms yeah. are so bad is that you've basically eaten your, you know your, your body's eating the same muscles for yeah. fuel and if you can avoid that by eating and you know mm. Um, steadily and okay, can mean. I just stop you there for a moment? Okay, I, I, I recognise to
0: ask you one question or whatever twenty minutes, which is great. Right. No, but I'm sure
1: Don't that uh, no, no, that is, that is,
0: you know, that is really, really helpful because we've talked a little bit on, you know, in corresponding. But that's has that again just really helped me just to understand the back. I've trusted you a little bit over the last year, and recognising that if I want to finish strong, I need to start comfortably. Uh, but it's interesting to know just some sort of the reasoning behind that. But the, the question that we've all got probably is those ranges because um, I've talked to one or two people and other people have put on um, you know, my blog and the, the Facebook is about just how you found that. Now, I know for me, you looked at four or five races that I'd done from a cross-country race, flat out, as it yeah. were, to a longer race. And you gave me a, a great spreadsheet which basically gave me if I was doing a three-hour race then my heart rate should be uh, 148, or whatever it was, right down to a 48-hour race, where it should be about 115. And then you gave me all the way along. So last year, when I did the 110, the hard hardmores, it was 124. And for this race, which was, I was hoping for 10 hours, so I was aiming for 137. Uh, now, you also gave me yours, and also Thomas's in Ireland, didn't you? And they were all very different. So your 10-hour um, race was probably... 10 beats higher or whatever it was yeah. okay so first of all how did you come up with that to help us and then and then how, how if someone was wanting to try running by heart rate for the fling or the west harlem way just how can they find out what their uh, optimum range should be for okay. a different lengths
1: so the the spreadsheet the, basically what i did to um create the spreadsheet was to to take our own race data so basically heart rate monitors We've been using during the races and recording that. So in previous races, you know, I, certainly my own, my own running, I started observing when I did, say, the Dirty 30. I've done that several times. Actually, my heart rate, my finishing heart rate, was always roughly around about the same amount. I'd pace it in different strategies, and in different days I'd be, I'd be stronger or fitter or you know, not as, not as strong or having cramp. But all these different races had different outcomes. And different ways of actually running them but the actual average heart rate was within you know three or four beats per minute um and it, it happened you know whether, you know with short races at, you know a 10k i would typically have a heart rate between 174 and 178 um and you know typically around at 176 and so i could see this curve and there was a kind of a pattern and everything would fit into it so i it's almost a straight line it's actually it's an exponential curve i fitted to it mm. and I, f- I fitted that to my own data and then i basically talked to thomas and yourself to find out well does this work for other people mm. and actually to my relief it did okay that's that's a confirmation when you start testing a, you know that an approach um you start exploring There there's only three people i've done it for so far but effectively it's not really surprising that people can't you know, maintain the same heart rate. You know, it gets, the further you go, the lower heart rate you'll be able to maintain. Mm. And it doesn't really matter what pace, pacing strategy you use. If you run out too hard and you start off with a really high heart rate, you invariably slow down. And, you know, you end up much lower heart rate at the end of the race. Um, if you actually run it even, then it's, you know, even all the way through. But the pacing strategy is different. But the average you'll get to is typically about the same. Mm. And so, looking at that pattern, you can then start predicting. And then, there's a curve. um, We can start predicting between. It's not perfect. There's Mm -hmm. going to be, you know, some days you'll actually be be hotter, for instance, and you'll be able to tolerate a higher heart rate um, in that, just because um, you're not necessarily working quite as hard in terms of muscle strength and stuff like that. But just to support the kind of um, the heat loss. So. For people applying it to themselves, I think one of the key bits of data, if you've got uh, the previous races that you've done, is to actually just... The greatest one, you just do a straight line. So it's like a 10k race or a half marathon. You just plot the time you know, for a half marathon or a 10k and your heart rate there, and then, say, a 50k race or a, a 100k race or a 50 mile or whatever. Um, I typically do it by a number of hours. So you know, a five-hour race... On the mountains, might only take, might, you might only get twenty miles, but on the flat, a far mile race could take you. Well, the elites so would be forty miles. Or something <laughs> crazy like that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you basically, you know, take the time and well, you know your average heart rate for that time, and you'll get a roughly a straight line. It will, you know, typically it'll be a curve, but it'd be close enough to a straight line for for government work, I guess. Yeah, um, and just kind of tailor it to yourself. And I mean, John and I are here. We're, you know, so if you ask us questions about, right, this is what my heart rate at this race, and this is what it was for another race. What do you think it will be? And we can probably come up with something for you. I mean, longer term, I'd like to actually publish how we can do that, or possibly write an app to do it on the phone. in mm-hmm. um, you know, analyze a Strava day for us like that. And that's a long-term thing potentially we could do. Um, for if you don't have all that race data, um, you know, for instance, if if you run a, a a one-hour race and you've run a a five-hour race then estimating a three-hour race in between be quite easy because it's kind of interpolating between the two Mm. the more difficult part is actually what happens when you go beyond the envelope so if you've only ever done the fling before as an 11-hour race then you do the the west Highland way race you're suddenly extrapolating it you know you're doubling it basically you know more than twice the distance so that's more difficult to to estimate you know some people will be able to maintain their high rate Hi, you know something like Debbie, who's got great um, aerobic and structural um, and metabolic resi- resilience, will be able to maintain that pace and likely maintain our heart rate. So the curve would be flatter. Mm. Um, somebody who's less resilient will probably drop off more quickly. So you're going to find out where you are um, in your own races. But um, if you know your heart rate, it's like a short race. You do not do ten k's. Or if you if you haven't done a ten k race with a heart rate monitor, then just find out your lactate threshold, do a tempo run, a couple of tempo runs, and find out what your heart rate is then. Um, So for me doing the the fling, my heart rate for a a 10K would typically be around, say, 175. For the fling, last year it was 154. So you think, well, okay, that's roughly 20 less. Um, So, and when I did the West Highland Way, my average heart rate was 138. So I didn't quite manage the heart rate I targeted, but that was because of the walking. Mm. and the sitting down, um, which I didn't really either attend, but, but, but these things happen. So, um, I've lost. Yeah. Where no. are we going? Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about too many things at once. Um, yeah, so if you, um, as a percentage, you can, you could well, you can just take it, you know, if you know, in tempo pace, just take 20 off that for the fling, and, you know, another 15 off that for the West Island Way race, so yes. like 35 below. Yeah. Um, What you may find is that when you're racing, your heart rate, because of adrenaline and because you're carrying stuff and you might be got more jackets on and stuff than usual, your heart rate will be typically higher than in training. So, in training, you might be able to bobble along at heart rate of 130 at 10 minute mile pace, but then in race day, you might be 10 higher than that. You found that. And um, 137 as a percentage of your lactate threshold is actually quite high. But it can you know when you know you compare it to what your training pace is? It'll be, you know, it would seem to be a very high heart rate for that. But that's you know, if you see that in a race, that's kind of normal. Mm. You know, I typically find it five ten higher than in training. Um, so mm. you need to take that into account. But um, basically, if you're basing on race data, there's no need to take account of how you compare it from training. You know, ideally, you compare races to races. Yeah. So when you've got the same environment where you're. No, I did you know, an ultra race where you're actually eating and drinking and you're carrying more kit. And, um. just, just thinking,
0: like, say, you example, know, uh, I did a Hardmost 55 last year and this year, and I reckon my heart, average heart rate was very, very similar within one beat, but it was done very differently. So last year, I, w- I had times where I was well over 140, and I finished, it was near 120. Whereas this year it was a consistent, pretty well, within a few beats all the way along. And, I, and, that, and that's what you'd look for, is it?
1: That's, that's ideal. You're yeah. probably more disciplined than I am with it. So yeah. um, credit to yourself. I, mean, I think probably you know, having that kind of discipline, if you're a disciplined runner, it's probably easier. Um, but I think the most important thing about it, I mean, one, yeah, you did a big PB which is great. And I think a couple of percent of that was down to improvements in aerobic fitness which mm. proved by your great, um, half marathon time, um, this year, but that only explains a couple of percent of it. Um, so, you know, you, your resilience could have been improved, but you actually effectively kind of improved your resilience by your pacing a lot. Mm. Um, you basically made yourself a stronger runner, not by actually doing more training or eating any magical gels, um, mm. You just did it by pacing in a way that was accommodating to your body's needs. Mm. You know, and it's kind of, I think the smiles on your face mm. during the, the, the second half says it all. You know, you were just, you were, you were happy basically. Yeah. And if you're ha- you know, your brain's happy, you basically the rest of your body's happy. Yeah.
0: I, I did and love it. that picture of them. Um, I, I imagined I had this reservoir of glycogen. And I kept thinking, right, if, if I if my heart rate goes above 140 and near a 145, which I reckon is around about my threshold, then I'm going to eat into that that store, which means when I need it later on, it's not left. So I had this picture to try and as as long as I kept my heart rate below 142, 140, then it would stay intact, <laughs> you know. And, and what you've been what that last question just in talking about why that's important. That that makes a lot of sense. Well, doesn't it?
1: It, when you can probably refine that, little, and I think those kind of ideas in your head are, are useful, mm. um, because if you especially if the first time you try these things, having the confidence that it's going to work. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's taken me a little while to have confidence in it's working, and, and the fact that you're doing it yourself, and it's been, a, been an experiment. You know, mm. what's applied to me is one thing, but actually, the, the, you know, guiding somebody else to do something similar and for them to be a success mm. is relief (laughs) so if you hadn't had a success with it it would have been obviously oh shit sorry about that (laughs) i was talking shit um so yeah if you can get your body working in a way that's not you know aggressive against it you know not trying to attack it, it is actually a friendly way to talk to your body Mm. um it, it becomes much easier and it responds and you know you could see that from the pictures Mm. and obviously talking to you afterwards and you know the fact you were actually able to run efficiently at the end as well you know did you have less muscle oh definitely i was
0: i was running by the by the tuesday feeling you know most of most of the soreness had gone within a day or so whereas
1: often it can be a a week or two so i think that's that's probably down to when you when you dig into your reserves too much Mm your body starts eating its yeah. muscle yeah. mass. And that's, you know, you know if you don't eat into muscle mass so much, that's why mm. you can recover so much. I think a lot of elites, they, they naturally, mm. partly through training also partly through genetics, um, are able to burn a lot of fat really efficiently. And they can actually put in huge mileages and they can recover really quickly. And if you're actually an ordinary runner... You can't get away with the same things. You know, they can do something crazy, like you know, Robbie Ribbritton did crazy pacing at the, the West Ham Way race last year. But him and Paul Gibbon are such fantastic athletes. They're able, even at level, to deal with the heat, though, to deal with the um, glycogen. You know, they're actually still burning a lot of fat, even though they're running so intensely, yeah. and they were still able to actually digest food and digest. Uh, water, so their they're bodies—they they did slow down a lot. They didn't run an optimal race at all, but they were able to keep on because they're just such phenomenal athletes. And for average person, you can't emulate that. You know, in mean, part you might not have the genetics for it, and part you just don't have the training. And it's not just one year of training or six months of training; it's year after year. You know, the elites don't come out of nowhere. Mm. Um, They—they're they, really committed year after year, and they—they they basically are elites because. They haven't fallen by the wayside. There's lots yeah. of people who try trying the same thing, might be fully committed, might be just trying as much effort, but don't achieve it. Mm. But they have a natural ability to burn lots of fat. But if you don't have that ability, then you've got to be a bit smarter. Mm. You, you know, things like pacing by heart rate is a way of effectively um, just working with your body in a, a more kind of friendly way, more holistic way. Yeah. And... Yeah, it certainly does pay the difference. since I've been doing it, I've run stronger. You certainly enjoy it in the in the, in the race, mm-hmm. and you recover quicker, as you found as well. Yeah. And I think if you also, um, what I found, if you can do races and you know it's going to go well, it's quite a different thing. You know, if you do, if you if you run aggressively, and some races, you know, go well, the next one doesn't. It's quite difficult to follow up a, with a race that doesn't go well. And you, know, you don't, might not know why one race goes well and one race doesn't. And the body is a fickle thing and there's lots of things running into it. But once you start getting into a bad cycle, um, it's quite difficult to get out of that rut. And it's not just a psychological thing. You know, if you're really pushing your body, it's eating itself. Mm. And you're eating away all your mitochondria, all your fat enzymes and the actual the, the kind of the lining and the actual um, machinery in your muscles are all being eaten away mm. and that's just a horrible thing to happen you know you know we're all trying to have fun just, this. and so you know if you want to you know want to finish very strong and happy and actually mm. better walk to work the next day <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps get running in the next week mm. then actually just taking a little bit more of a kind of patient approach I mean, certainly pacing has improved you know people have to look at splits people are getting better at it mm. There's still probably 95% of people go out too fast. Um, and it's a shame. It basically means 95% of people are hurting more at the end of the race than they need to. Mm. And they're not going faster. You know, mm. it's all for, you know, if, if your aim is to hurt, you know, if you're kind of a masochist, and well, we all, I guess we all must be hurt, to a certain extent as an ultra runner, um, you know, again, yeah, go out fast. That's the guaranteed way of actually, you know, stressing your body the most for a given. Mm. Finishing time.
0: Mm. Great. Well, look, Robert, that's uh, almost one hour forty-five. <laughs> it's been great, and I, I will get you back. there's lots and lots of other things that I'd love to chat about, but I think we'll stop it there. Okay? okay. So I'm sure your daughters and friends will be calling any moment. Yeah, uh, yeah. They I'm should be coming out of their rock. Yeah. Concert. But thank you so much. I think one of the things I've you know i, I obviously I, I love the blogs and I often go on and I see that you've already commented and not just little comments but you leave a lot and it's great and re- I know people really appreciate it um because you do you've put a lot of thought into this and your analytical mind has um has really had a good look at it and it's it's great and it even if people don't agree with you they've it helps them to think through doesn't it and to you know yeah, get I, some I ideas so. well it does I mean, I, I'm, I'm
1: still I'm certainly still learning yeah. Yeah. Um I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about it. that. That's I, I can't switch off my analytical side no. to me. It's just I was born like it, <laughs> and it's kind of refined through the years yeah. because of the jobs I do and yeah. the places I've been. But um, I think over time we're going to learn more about running yeah. and you know, I'm still learning, and you're still learning. Better. and also, if you start actually being a little bit more analytical about what happens, then we can learn more. Mm. If you're just going to randomly do stuff and don't, you know, sometimes you need people like ourselves who are just a little bit more geeky or a lot more (laughs) geeky um, to actually spend the time and actually learn about these things and actually just recording the information. And over time, you start seeing patterns. And, you know, I'm I'm really verbose Um, and I'm not really a great person to to teach people. Um, I'm certainly good at the analytical side of things. And mm-hmm. um, working out the patterns and um, understanding why you might want to do something, and then predicting what we should do next. Um, and over the years, I would I would hope we can start, you know, tailoring the kind of scientific approach in a way that's it's something that's digestible by the average runner. Um, so that, you know I think phone apps will probably help a little bit. About that and some this will be done automatically, um, potentially. Um, but right now we're still in that kind of infancy of actually trying to understand ultra marathoning. You know, there's lots of, you know, guides for running a 10k or a half marathon, a marathon. You know, it's not fully understood, but it, it's certainly mm. better understood than ultra marathoning. And we're still in the infancy of ultra mm. um, So it's kind of interesting to see what's going to happen next. How fast will Paul go next? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know things like that. Yeah. Especially if starts, and
0: I, I think yeah, that's right. one of the things I love about ultra Run as well, is that there's so many different approaches. You know, there's an approach that we like to, obviously, we, we like to do, but there's other people who run without a watch and have got a completely different strategy, and there is room for everyone, yeah, isn't there? theres yeah.
1: there is uh, there's a few people um, I see consistently on looking at re- and analyzing splits who pace in a yeah. very similar way. To naturally. I've done I've nothing like John Duncan last yeah, year. yeah. yeah um he was running without any heart rate monitor Mm. and he ran a couple of the stages a bit too fast or slow um but he did it naturally and there's a couple Mm. other runners like that especially there's a couple of women better than men right yeah we'll stop there because after your phone's rang right thank you very much well thank
0: you very much robert for your time (laughs) and i'm sure people enjoy (laughs) listening to this all right Well, if you're still with us and you've made it all the way to the end, well done. I think you deserve a prize in itself. That was certainly a a long interview. And uh, there's a few times when I was chatting with Robert and I was thinking, oh, I need to try and move on. But I was enjoying listening to what he was saying. And so just went with the flow and it was a little bit longer than uh, I say than I planned. But if you're still listening, you've obviously enjoyed it or hope you have. You have certainly made it to the end. Uh, So thanks for listening. And again, just want to finish with a quote from Wombat Fitness. And this one is from uh, a guy called Doug Larson. And he says this, Some of the world's greatest feats were accomplished by people not smart enough to know they were impossible.